Hey, is that Beth? Oh, hey, Patrick. Beth, what's going on? You know, just taking a walk, trying to get out. Been inside a little too long, so. What's up, guys? Mason. Whoa, Mason, how did you get out of that tree? <laughs> I was just hanging out in a tree. We were supposed to record, right? I mean, I thought we were, but how long were you planning to be in that tree? Well, I have all my equipment up there. So you've been recording me and Patrick the whole time. Yeah, you're bugged. Do you remember that time when we were at a party and I asked y'all to turn around so I could poke you with a needle? Yeah, those were mics. Oh, no. So we've been mic'd this entire time. Uh-huh. Uh, I feel like I need to talk to a lawyer about that. And I may or may not be a KGB agent. Well, that being said, I watched that movie on Netflix the other day, the half of it. I don't know if y'all seen that yet. Oh, yeah. I watched it, too, in my tree. <laughs> oh, wow. You really got the hookup up there. Yeah. Well, that treehouse sounds pretty magical. So let's make some podcast magic then, guys. Let's just talk about the half of it. And welcome, everyone, to another Son of a Ginger episode. As always, I'm your co-host, Patrick Baylor. I'm Beth Wildsound Marcinko. And I'm Mason A.C. Tone Moreau. And we are on a evening jaunt, ready to talk about the Netflix film The Half of It, directed and written by Alice Wu, starring Leah Lewis, Daniel Dimer, and Alexis Lemire. Yeah, we, hold on. Before we start talking about the movie, we need to sort of talk about what we're doing. We sat down to record this episode and we were thinking about what to do because we are just kind of burnt out from the state of our lives right now. <laughs> Mostly the working from home and like being inside all day and not really seeing outside of like a certain four walls for at least eight hours. It's just really been monotonous and, you know, not helpful for us to like be creative. So we wanted to give you guys something a little bit different this week. Something a little fresh. Yeah, we've been living half a life. And you don't know the half of it. Right. And as such, we decided to fill it back in a little bit by reviewing the half of it. So one thing I did like about this movie, you know, this is a movie that you know, really encompasses a lot. You know, it's about truly a love triangle and closeted gay girl, you know, writing these love letters for this new friend, her neighbor across the street that really digs the popular girl, Aster. So this portion of it is Cyrano de Bergerac, the play. <laughs> the story of Cyrano de Bergerac is this whole thing where you have Cyrano, who's ugly, writing letters for this man to woo this woman. To Alice woo this woman. Yeah, to Alice woo this woman. You got it. <laughs> named Roxanne and then eventually it ends tragically but, but before that Roxanne does fall in love with his words and uh, by extension fall in love with Cyrano. So it's got some classic inspirations. Yeah definitely but uh, like a completely modern take on it and so you see this teenage girl struggle with her identity and her sexuality living in a small town and the challenges that that presents especially when everyone knows everyone and she already feels like she doesn't fit in because she and her father are Chinese and her mother passed away so she feels like an outsider in so many ways and this is her way writing these letters getting involved being the letter writer for this guy and writing papers for everyone in her grade is her way of becoming connected when she's so isolated. Right. She's basically got a whole bunch of stuff figured out. Like she's already an adult, like her dad says at the end of the movie, right? And she's yeah. like, she's got a job, essentially, a couple jobs, prospects, and a lot of stuff that people in her like small town don't really have, except for the emotional sort of maturity. I would say like she has her own romantic Yes, maturity. romantic maturity, definitely. Like, that's, I think, what I would 
call it because she's had to be an adult for so long, but at this point in her life that she's just kind of repressed those feelings because she doesn't really have room to concern herself with that, which is sad. It's sort of sad to me that she doesn't come to this realization until she has to help somebody else fall in love. Yeah knows how to look out for someone else and not necessarily herself. Right. And it's funny to me, Beth, you bring up Cyrano de Bergerac, right? And you <laughs> compare it to Cyrano de Bergerac, yeah. which I've never heard of in my life. Oh, we read it in high school. So Mason, are you the Paul in this situation? <laughs> I mean, I feel like everyone sort of relates to Paul in many ways, but the first act of this movie, I was really getting like easy A vibes. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? This is a little bit more like a moodier, more like introspective easy A. I felt like throughout the movie, you know, when you're making these coming of age movies, especially with easy A, I would say, like one or two like ultimate themes that are explored. But this one, I feel like it had a lot of different different perspectives and themes really well woven throughout the story. There was a character for every single demographic to relate to and attach themselves to. Sure. A man Trig. <laughs> right. With the exception of Trig and maybe Aster's family. I don't know. I'm sure some people relate to like that perspective. Yeah, I definitely feel like people relate to that environment. I certainly did. But most of the supporting characters, if not all, have a positive and meaningful development. Totally. Everyone learns something which is something that tells me is a well-crafted story is that multiple characters all go through change and it's not just supporting characters directing the main one on their path to change. Very much so. Yeah, because like the core of this movie is a love triangle movie. And at least with like the real triangle, you truly do see all of them grow and learn about themselves. I really did enjoy, I think, Paul's character development the most. I think it kind of faltered at the end with his, uh, I don't know, Catholic boyisms. But I think like- He learned, he learned. And he just had kind of, for the sake of the movie, an accelerated learning path. Yeah, cause that is one criticism is that act three, I don't know, it seemed like they hit the fast forward button a little bit. Yeah, I felt and like act one was very, very long. Yeah, act one was like a little bit of an extended trailer, not even extended trailer, but it's like, oh, okay, this is the concept that we are very familiar about from watching the trailer and, or reading the description before you watch the movie. And then, yeah, it kind of kicks into what you expect and then accelerates way late, but I digress. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of sort of dramatic tension that really builds up, because especially like through the middle of the movie on, I was just like, okay, well, yeah, they have good intentions and they're a little bit naive, but they are just kind of like toying with this girl's emotions, almost like- Which girl, Ellie? Yeah, uh, no, Aster. Aster's emotions. Uh, they're like, they're just kind of messing around with her emotions or whatever. Which right. is what happens to Roxanne in Cyrano de Bergerac. <laughs> oh yeah, look at that. I felt like that really wasn't touched upon in any way aside from just like, I didn't mean to, you know what I mean? It, I didn't like, want to hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt you, I was just, doing my job. Yeah, we've seen that in a lot of things. <laughs> you know, you get some dimension to Aster in terms of like how she feels in general about her life and being a teenager in this like very small town and having to live up to all these expectations. And as she says, being a pretty girl. Where everyone gives her something. Right, because they want her to be like them. You get that from her character, but you don't really get any dimension beyond that. You don't see really in the end how this whole scheme has affected her. And I think that the forgiveness 
sort of that comes so quickly at the end is a little bit disingenuous because it seems like, especially at that age, that sort of deception would be a bigger deal because somebody's been lying to you from two people at least have been lying to you for several months and you thought they were going to be your way out of your expected life. Especially when her dad is a strict pastor. Yeah, he's a deacon because they're Catholic, yeah. It took a little bit to figure out exactly where Astor's dad and her family sort of even fit into the community. It was a little too vague in the beginning. I think it could have cleared things up if it was just a little more upfront, even if it meant a little bit more exposition. Sure. I definitely did get her thing though. Like I definitely, I mean, she did tell us my dad's strict and he, you know, has this tight curfew and stuff like that. And I knew that girl in high school, you know, mm -hmm. I very much knew that girl, so like that's something I was able to kind of click and figure out really quick. You know, my dad was almost that kind of dad too, a little bit. But like, I thought of all the character development, I do think Aster had the best setup because I found that whole line to be pretty compelling actually, of like, people just kind of give me things and kind of expect me to be this little sliver of them here and this little sliver of them there, and then all of a sudden I'm not my own person, I'm just a bunch of things that people want me to be, yada yada. Well, and to be named Aster, you have to be a hot girl. You gotta be a hot girl, yeah. Aster is totally a fabric hot girl name. Yeah, it was given truly only by a screenwriter. That's not a name anyone actually has. I think it was probably to avoid anyone in their life having the same name. Yes. <laughs> That's what I always struggle with when I'm trying to write a character is like, oh, well, I don't want to name it that because that reminds me of that person. And every time I read their name, it's going to just remind me of that person. Who's this new unattainable hot girl that I've <laughs> never heard of before? Yeah. If you're writing a character that has the qualities of the person it reminds you of, then that's something right? Yes and no, but I think sometimes even if a character is very inspired by somebody, that sort of separation is important to me when I'm writing. What adds dimension to her character is the fact that she's, like Patrick said, kind of just shoved into a box, been told by her social circles, this is where you belong. She never got to pick for herself due to reasons that she couldn't control, which I feel goes the same for the other two characters in the triangle. And that's really what connects them is that they're all sort of- Outsiders in their shoved. own way. Yeah, they've all sort of been placed into their own confinement that they're not all right with. Scene kind of Aster's growth, especially in this romance as she's the one being suited. It was definitely compelling to see kind of as she got to show more of herself, of who Aster actually is, instead of the pieces from her friends. Right, and then there's that whole moment where they're in the hot spring or whatever. Yeah, I really enjoyed and, that. Uh, and she's like, I think I'm gonna... <laughs> did you? Did you now? Hey, hey now. Yeah, I thought that was a very personal moment. It's like her hidden away secret garden that she definitely doesn't show other people. Like, I'm sure Trig doesn't know about that place. It yeah. felt very out of the blue. Like, I kind of get that she maybe felt this sort of connection to Ellie, but bringing her into that sort of circle very quickly, I don't know if that's like realistic. Yeah, I would agree with you. When she just turns around to Ellie and says, hey, you wanna get out of here? It's like, you barely know this person. Like, <laughs> right. all you know about her is that she's good at piano. Yeah. Otherwise, y'all have hung out one-on-one, -on -one, truly once. Yeah. Or there's something to be said about what happens in that scene, where she's like, oh, I think I'm gonna, I'm, I'm definitely gonna marry Trig. And she's just like... It was so random. No, she's jumping back into the comfort and quality of life that she feels like she can attain without the broad brushstrokes. Yeah, that 
seem to be a thematic element throughout the whole movie is this idea of like the best paintings are the best just due to five strokes. She's saying like, oh yeah, I'll just be comfortable. I'll have an attractive, successful husband and he's successful because he's attractive and everyone loves him, right? <laughs> because he's a big fish in a small pond. Right. You know, her parents will be happy with it and there won't be as much conflict because she won't be going against what they want for her. I mean, but trig might be smart. Like, trig is probably short for, like, trigonometry, right? Yeah, I'm sure that's what his parents had in mind. Yeah. But of the main, main story, it's the story of Ellie and how she really has to repress all of her romantic feelings and then channel them through this doofy, lovable golden retriever of a guy named Paul. And... I think that was done in a very realistic way. You know, I don't know how many kids are writing letters for other kids in high school these days. You know, I'm an old man right now. I don't think anyone writes letters anymore. Yeah, it's all Snapchat or... Ghost Messenger. Ghost Messenger. But, I mean, we're all a bunch of straight white kids. But I think it was done in a fairly realistic way, I guess, in that, in this conservative world that, you know, Ellie is still shooting the shot the best she can without, I think, you know, shocking and rocking her whole world. I wouldn't go with the term realistic. Okay. I think it's a, it's a what if scenario. So like, you kind of have to suspend disbelief. Like, would you call this movie a slice of life film? <laughs> Far or would, from you, it. would you call it drama, right? A slice of life means as realistic as you could go, right? I really don't think that it's that. Yeah, the Florida Project is a realistic slice of life movie. Right. Exactly. Right, I think that like that comparison to EZA is sort of like the closest example that I can think of where I would call this more of a drama than a comedy. So maybe like a comedic drama. A rom-drom? A rom-drom. I like that. I think that I wouldn't call this realistic i've not had to have like i've not had the experience of coming out or dealing with my sexuality in that way as like none of us have especially because none of us are from like a very small town we've all grown up in a relatively urban or suburban environment yeah. with you know a variety of perspectives in our lives and pretty involved parents yeah. so i don't think any of us can really comment on the realism yeah it's true yeah, I think what we can say about it is that it is a unique perspective on coming out and dealing with sexuality. And although it's a twist on a classic story, it, you know, really takes it, modernizes it, gives you the very real coming of age story. Yeah. And I think that it does that really well. And like any coming of age story, a lot of things that I enjoy about coming of age stories is just the unrequited love aspect. Love that shit that's very much seen in this film. Exactly, and I think like the unrequited love is something that most people experience at some point in their life. And with the added layer of Ellie being gay and her coming to terms with her sexuality, I think that it doesn't like hit you over the head with the fact that like she's gay and maybe trying to hide it, maybe trying to come out. I think that it's just like, this is a girl figuring out how she feels. This is how she feels. She doesn't know if she's going to be accepted by the people around her and that scares her. And those are just like very like fundamental human emotions that anybody could identify with. Now, Paul. Someone you can identify with. Someone I can identify with as a goofy boy that has fallen for someone but doesn't know what to say. No, but I felt like I identified with all three of these of the main characters for different reasons for each of them. I don't feel uncomfortable saying that like when she got up and played on the stage and everyone noticed her, that I didn't feel the same thing when I did that in high school. 
You know what I mean? Your starring turn is Charlie Brown. Yeah, exactly. I played Charlie Brown in the school play in high school. And like that was just one of those moments where it was like, hey, I get to show everyone this talent that I really haven't displayed outside of my room. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that kind of thing. And then there's obviously like the unrequited love sort of bumbling buffoonery aspect to Paul that definitely reminded me of myself in high school. Reminded me of football me, for sure, because I was also a bit bumbling. We are on the board. We are on the board. I I love that. But I think the, the, like, developments of these characters are also sort of amplified by the fact that the adult characters who traditionally in coming-of-age stories either are comedic relief or provide some level of wisdom. But all of the adult characters in this movie, I felt, had... Their own problems. Yeah, well, it was clear that they didn't have it as figured out. We saw the kids figure it out, and that was right. pretty cool. And so that further amplifies, like I'm saying, the developments of the main characters, because the ones that, I, as a viewer, you would traditionally come to expect to sort of guide the characters through the narrative are also just kind of hitting a wall in a way. Yeah. And I guess in that way, that felt slightly realistic to like the teenage experience, because even if you do have parents who are there for you and involved and maybe, you know, are trying to understand you, that it's your experience and your life. And ultimately, like you're going to make the decision regardless of what your limitations are from your parents. And that's where it was a certain point of realism that I definitely noticed for sure, for the sake of Mason, you mentioned EZA earlier. Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci. I love fan- Stanley Tucci. Fantastic and some of my favorite teenage movie parents. No one's like that, though. Like, there's not many actual parents like that. No one's that cool. So to see these parents be a little bit more uncool, you see someone that's strict. You see someone that is broken and pretty reserved. And then, you know, with Paul's mom, we didn't see much of her, but, you know, still very conservative and set in her own ways. But even she was more upset about the uh, sausage. Oh, yeah. She's very conservative in her sausage recipe. Yeah, yes. exactly. Don't want to mess up the sausage recipe. It's, it's Nana's. It's Nana's. <laughs> it's important. You can't mess it up. But yeah, to see the main characters all be way more independent in their own way and grow that way. And then especially with it being this important LGBT movie where a lot of times in real life, teenagers don't have that adult figure to look up to. And they do have to figure it out with just their friends. Right. That's where I really like this movie. So one thing I really liked about this, Patrick, you're calling it an LGBT movie, which definitely like there's that element in it. But I like that it wasn't totally focused on Ellie's coming out. It wasn't this big event like it is in Love, Simon, for example. Yes. Which... I enjoyed it as a movie. I know that some people have a lot of differing opinions about it. I watched it on a rainy Sunday morning and made me cry. It was all right. But I liked that it wasn't just focused on this one event that's supposed to, in media, be this huge production of an event in a gay person's life. I like that it was much more about the figuring out and the coming of age and the recognizing who you are inside rather than focusing on all of those external pressures and factors. It was more about Ellie's entire life instead of this one single aspect of her life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's these three characters all separately realizing that they themselves have one particular kind of special sauce. <laughs> right? Special, special sausage. Special sausage. Taco you know, with, sausage. With Paul, he realizes that he has an enormous capacity for empathy. And then I feel like with Aster, she just kind of self-actualizes and realizes that, like, beyond the walls of Squamish, 
are like a group of people that aren't going to push her into a box. A whole world of people who don't know Hot Girl Aster. Right. And then Ellie just kind of takes a second to pause in the locomotion of her life while juggling all of these pieces and takes a moment to like grab something for herself. I think that some of the best single character focused narratives do that. They find this person, they identify and isolate a problem that they're having and it either blows their life apart or it really changes them significantly in some way. And I feel like this movie did that really successfully. And in a way it sort of introduces people to if someone who is like a character from this town in the movie watches this movie. Saying if someone who's maybe less than open-minded watches it. Yes. I feel like this would be one that would really open up someone's heart because there are so many feelings and experiences that are all different and unique to the characters that a viewer can relate to that all ultimately have the same sort of conclusion. In that way, it really kind of opens a door for a viewer to empathize. I just feel like there are so many avenues to which you can relate to this movie, that it very much helps you also relate to characters where you don't have personal experience that helps you relate to them. So we were really able to relate to the whole gang here, but now the gang has gone on all their separate ways. Ellie's going to college. Paul is, I guess, staying in Squamish, so is Aster. There's some more high school left for, I think, both of them. Do you guys smell a sequel? What's gonna happen next? Hmm, I could maybe smell a sequel. I could see maybe like, uh, hot girl Aster goes to art school, Ooh. gets some like dyed hair maybe, has like a big fight with her parents. She's like, where do I turn? I'm turning to Ellie. And then maybe it's like, um, do I like her just because she likes me and wants me to be happy? Or, you know, do I really have these feelings for her? So that's my sequel theory, we'll say. If this movie does blow up in the way that many things on Netflix have blown up, I could see them picking it up for a series or something. Ooh, I'd yeah. watch a series. Uh, you know, they, they are sort of needing to fill the hole left by 13 Reasons Why. Yeah, I think it could maybe be a Gossip Girl-esque drama. Yeah, I think so. Maybe less with a anonymous narrator. Hey, that'd be a fun hook though. Hey. The main character is the one who is the catalyst for whatever the love interest, right? Who's like helping this person out, but you don't know who they are until like the season finale. Oh. So there's like a voice of God kind of thing that's helping Aster and Ellie and Paul and Trig. Right, of course. Well, I mean, Trig is going to be in Squamish forever. Maybe we just watch that spinoff, The Trig Files, and just, you know, it's him uh, doing okay in football or whatever sport that he played. I feel like he'll start a local football league. Yeah. Or, like, start a local, like, sports league of some kind. All while he sells cars and then... No, he's a he's gonna work in construction like his dad. Well, he can Remember? do a couple of things. I guess so. He, I mean... He's a man of many talents, that trick. You know, he's just juggling a lot of balls. <laughs> I would love to see this just extend to college and then Ellie and Aster kind of are able to develop more of their relationship. Aster maybe would be figuring out, is she gay at all or does she just like the romance? Maybe she's bi, maybe they kind of explore that aspect of sexuality and figuring it out and maybe saying that like, you don't have to 
figure it all out and you don't have to force yourself to be something. Yeah. I think that's like Aster's whole thing really is like you don't have to force yourself to be something because you think that's what people expect from you. Right, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's very compelling on its own. It's just of, yeah, who is Aster? Well, I mean, everyone wants to see more of Hot Girl Aster. More Hot Girl Aster. Hot Girl Aster. <laughs> see, the dog thought it was funny. <laughs> but totally unrelated. I would watch a cooking show where Paul just makes all of the family recipes and then his new recipes. Oh, or where Ellie and Paul make like her parents' Chinese dishes. That would be fun. Oh, or Ellie's dad and Paul start a cooking channel on YouTube. Sure, like it's a total spinoff that is like its own thing where it's just cooking videos. And then you watch it, it's recommended after you finish Nailed It on Netflix or something like that. I don't know if uh, Paul would be that great on a cooking show. He has some enunciation issues. Well, we're gonna have to find out. You know where else you can find out what cool shows are happening? By subscribing to us, wherever you get your podcast. And when you do subscribe, you should also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you subscribe and can leave us a review. And if you wanna see us do some cooking videos featuring yours three truly, head on over to Instagram at Son of a Ginger Podcast and give us a follow. Maybe we should make taco sausage and that put that good. on Instagram. On the gram. I have a lot of hot dogs I panic bought that are still good. There's gotta be a reason that's not a thing. Probably just taco seasoning. And a sausage. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. But then it's all encased with a hard shell taco. That's where the fun is. Ah, uh, see, I'm not about the hard shell tacos unless it's a Doritos Locos Taco Cool Ranch only, please. <laughs> well, we will be debating the deliciousness of tacos throughout, but please enjoy some tacos and more podcasts. And with that, I've been Patrick Taco Baylor. I've been Beth Wild Sound Marcingo. And I'm Mason Seasoning Moreau. And goodbye from outdoors. <laughs>